We start with crime on the streets of Vancouver, and now the calls for a public forum and an action plan to address rising crime on the streets of the city. I got Tom Stamatakis, Canadian Police Association, standing by. First, have a listen to this report now from Global News. On any given day, there are four reported unprovoked assaults in the city of Vancouver. On New Year's Eve, a man lunges at a 22-year-old woman walking in front of the Hotel Georgia, pushing her to the ground. In January, police arrest a man for repeatedly stabbing a 25-year-old Mexican tourist from behind as he was standing in line at a downtown Tim Hortons. In February, a 38-year-old man allegedly attacked five women in a 40-minute crime spree, at one point grabbing broken glass and chasing a woman throughout an apartment building. And on Sunday, a 26-year-old man wanted on a Mental Health Act warrant was arrested after allegedly sucker-punching an 18-year-old exchange student walking down the street. Any incident like this is extremely concerning to have yet another um, seemingly random and unprovoked stranger assault in the city on an 18-year-old girl who's just walking around downtown uh, is incredibly unnerving. And I'm wondering how right now... NPA Vancouver City Councillor Melissa DiGenova is bringing forward a motion that calls on an action plan for public safety. What is it that we can do here immediately, but in the long term also, to plan for public safety? And the city has a role in that. There are ways, for example, like lighting, um, certain policies, uh, things that we can do with CCTV cameras even. Um, I'm not presupposing what those should be, I'm hoping that the public will have input for us. Okay, that report there from Global News reporter Grace Key. Let's discuss now with my guest Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, who's a long-serving Vancouver police officer, former head of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. Very pleased to welcome him back. Tom, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Okay, Tom, when you hear those reports about the random stranger assaults in the city of Vancouver, you, you were a cop for a long time in this city. Like, do you, is, is it getting worse from your perspective or has this kind of stuff always been going on? Like, it seems like it's worse now. Um, I mean, there, there have always been challenges in, in, uh, in the city of Vancouver and, and major cities right across the country. And many of those challenges are underlied by, you know, public policy decisions that have been made with respect to how we, uh, support people suffering from mental health issues. We, how we respond and support to people suffering from substance abuse issues. It, it certainly does seem like it's worse now than it has been. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and while I'm happy that, you know, Councillor DiGenova is starting a conversation. Some people are paying attention to this issue. At the same time, I'm very frustrated because this issue has been studied to death. There have been lots of solutions proposed, and it's really about doing something about it rather than having yet another meeting or a forum or a discussion. What do you think should be the top priority? Well, to start with, you know, you need to properly resource your police service so they can have the capacity to respond to these issues when they happen, and there have been lots of work done around that, extensive reports, matching deployment to call load, identifying the types of calls and how to respond to them, et cetera, et cetera. But we've had councils, and this council in particular, make arbitrary decisions around that kind of thoughtful approach to dealing with crime issues in our community. And and so the consequence of that is this kind of thing that we're talking about. But then beyond that, it's not just a policing issue. It's a broader public health, social services issue. And you've got, unfortunately, uh, senior levels of government, provincial government, federal government, making decisions that drive a lot of this kind of activity and and concern in the community. Yet it's the city that's on the hook for paying for it and responding to it. And that needs to change. We need a more collaborative approach. We need senior levels of government to, to start making decisions that build capacity to better support p- vulnerable people in our neighborhoods that are out there without any support yeah. and often, you know, getting involved in activities that, that, that the community becomes concerned about. Speaking of Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, talking about that police funding, it was very recently here that the provincial government stepped in here and restored $5.7 million in Vancouver Police Department funding that was cut out of the budget by Vancouver City Council a couple of years ago. I mean, this is uh, an activist city council we've got. There are a lot of councillors who have talked about defunding the police, that they they should have 
more mental health officers or social workers responding to some of the challenges and problems we see on the streets of our city. What do you think about when you hear that that argument, defund the police and put the money into social services instead? What's your reaction to that? Well, two things. First of all, I don't think there's any kind of consensus on what that term even means. Uh, it seems to mean different things to different people. So I'm not sure how you develop any kind of strategy around it when, again, it, it means something different to, to depending on who you're talking to. The second thing is the two are not related. You you know, the city has uh, they have certain core responsibilities, including public safety in the community. Even if you wanted to cut the police budget, the city has no control over um, um, you know, building more capacity with respect to social services or, or health care, because those are provincial government responsibilities. So, you know, it's the cart before the horse. You, you, you can't cut in one area and then expect to build capacity in, the, in, in another area overnight. How about we build that capacity, which I agree with. We need more capacity in the healthcare system and social services. And then if we build that capacity and we are effectively responding to the issues naturally you probably need less funding for for a police service for example or it would reduce the demand on the police service in which case you could reevaluate what the funding is for the police service but you need you need to be thoughtful about how you do that you can't just make arbitrary decisions based on ideology or rhetoric and expect yeah. to see a positive outcome. Could, could you give me like a, a shot of reality here on the front lines when when police officers are dealing with drug overdoses or, or let's say mental health calls? Because one of the arguments is, well, the crisis we have is largely about people who are sick on the street. They're, they're mentally ill. They need help. So it shouldn't be a police response. It should be a social services response. But in many of these cases, I've talked to police officers who say, look, yeah, they may be responding to it. It may be a mental health call, but it's also a call that involves violence or threats of violence or threats to public safety. So, I mean, sure, you could send a social worker down there to check on someone, but, you know, if you got a threat, if you got a violent, threatening situation, you need police there, do you not? Well, uh, well, absolutely, and that's exactly the issue. The reason why the police are responding to these calls is because nobody else wants to or has the ability to. If you do just a simple analysis of the kinds of calls we respond to, you'll find that most of those calls come to the police from family members that can no longer cope with the person who might be suffering from a mental health issue or some other issue, from the actual um, uh, health professionals who are treating these uh, individuals who who are falling into crises and can no longer manage the issue, so they call the police. This is not, we don't just, I've never, I've been an advocate for police uh, uh, for a very long time. I've never once advocated to take this work on. The reason why the, it's fallen to the police is because nobody else is doing it. And in many, many cases, and, and the data bears this out, it's the police that need res- to respond in the first instance to make sure they address any safety yeah. issues, including for the other more appropriately trained people that can then come in and intervene and manage the crises and support the person. But you still need the police to respond. And there are many examples of calls, uh, you know, where someone's armed with a weapon. We've had, we had one call last year. I, re- I remember in Vancouver, because I remember having a conversation with it about some of the members who responded uh, an individual uh, was in an apartment that set his apartment on fire and was was armed with two knives that were duct taped to his hands. So what mental health worker or other social worker is going to respond to that call before the police uh, respond first to, to deal with the public safety piece of it and including the fire department to deal with the fire uh, part of that call? So, again, it's we're having a conversation about uh, these very important issues, but it's not a thoughtful conversation, and it, and it becomes an either-or kind of proposition as opposed to how about a collaborative ap- approach where everybody's at the table, the police are working with healthcare, with social services, trying to respond to these very serious but difficult issues in our communities. Tom Stamatakis, thanks a lot for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Okay, let's talk about the Vancouver cyclist who got hit by a car last year. He has brutal injuries, including a severely broken arm that will never fully heal. His foot was mangled, too, after he got hit by a Mercedes being driven by a teenage driver. He posted photos of his injuries on social media this week, and it went pretty viral here in B.C. Now, here is the kicker. ICBC then sent him a bill 
for damage to the guy's car. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. Now the Global... There were literally 10 pieces of windshield pulled from my shoulder. Battered and broken, his bike snapped in half. Ben Bolliger was thrown 14 meters when he says a driver ran a stop sign and hit him last July. My hand was broken. I have a metal plate in here now. But the final crush, he says, was the bill he received eight months into his recovery. It adds insult to injury. Literally adds insult to injury. A letter from ICBC... Dear Benjamin... ...states the cyclist was driving an uninsured vehicle at the time and must pay more than $3,700 for the insured driver's repair claim. It's a punch in the gut. It really is a punch in the gut. How am I on the hook for getting hit by a car? Okay, let's discuss this case now with Eric McGracken, personal injury lawyer. He does a lot of ICBC work. Hey, Eric, thanks a lot for coming on again. Yeah, Mike, thank you for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Okay, this case is getting a lot of attention, Eric. And you got to feel for the guy. Like, the guy's injuries look brutal. Some of the photos he posted on Twitter are just kind of gut-churning when you see how badly this guy's arm was mangled in, the, in this crash. And what do you think about him getting that bill from ICBC for damage to the other guy's car? Yeah, you know, I'll repeat what, it, you know, what I told him, which is I said, well, don't pay it and, and contact a lawyer. And I think he does have a lawyer, which is a good news because he's got rights here. ICBC, even though they act like it sometimes, they're not judge, jury and executioner. They can't, they can't simply say you're at fault, you owe us money, we're coming after you. The person has rights. And, and so right away, uh, it, it struck me as odd for a few reasons. If ICBC is claiming you're an uninsured motorist and you're at fault and they're paying out money, there's, there's a technical section where they could do that from, but they have to give you notice. And if, you're, if you get back to ICBC and say you're not at fault, then they can't pay out and come after you. They have to have a finding through a court or through the civil resolution tribunal that you actually are at fault. So it seems like ICBC jumped the gun here. And Mike, I'll just be careful. All I have to go off here is the tweet. So I have to make some assumptions when I'm talking yeah. about Ben's case, but I'm assuming this letter is the first thing that he received and he wasn't given his notice to fight ICBC's internal adjudication of, of fault. But yeah, the whole thing you know, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. His, his tweet did go viral because it has a sense of inherent unfairness to it. Yeah, I'm taking a look at the letter that the guy received from ICBC, and it says, you were driving an uninsured vehicle at the time, which was his his bicycle. Right. Does, does that... It, it sounds weird to refer to a bicycle as an uninsured vehicle, but is that a, is that a, common, a common thing in cases like yeah. this? Yeah, so under the Motor Vehicle Act, you know, bicycles are vehicles. Like, like if you're on a bicycle on the road, you have to follow the rules of the road, so it's a vehicle. And under Section 20 of the Insurance Vehicle Act, I'm assuming that's what ICBC is up to here, when they pay money out where they say that they were on the hook for damages because of an uninsured um, vehicle, they could go after that person to refill their coffers. ICBC likes to have the best of both worlds. If they pay money out, they like to get the money back from others if they can. And that seems to be what they're doing here. But under that same section, when they, when they try to take money from somebody, the person can dispute fault. And if they're disputing fault, ICBC can't demand the debt as if it's actually owing. They still have to do some legwork to prove right. this man's at fault. So hopefully he's fighting them on this because from his account of what occurred if that's accurate he shouldn't be at fault right if right well it's stop sign and hits you that's going to be on that motorist for being careless right although it sounds like it's kind of a tricky one because icbc is saying we're not going to comment in detail on on this guy's specific case but they will put out they did put out a statement on it speaking more generally and what icbc said in their statement is this if a party is assessed as partially responsible for a claim, they could be responsible for some of the damages to the vehicle. Right. So I would appear to indicate that ICBC is saying that this guy is at least partially responsible for what happened. Is that, is that your read of it? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my read. I think yeah. Ben as much as said that, right? I think he right. mentioned in, in maybe some follow-up media that they're holding him 50% at fault. Right, and so right, 3700 right. reflects 50% of the Mercedes damages. Yeah, 
All right. Okay. So, uh, does the guy? Well, how does it work with no fault though? I mean, we got no fault auto insurance in BC right now. So, does this guy have any recourse? Yes. So, no fault's one of those things, or enhanced care, as ICBC calls it, sounds too good to be true, and turns out it is too good to be true. So, so he's got the short end of the stick on on his injuries, and I'm maybe going to dovetail here on the conversation, but cyclists probably got the worst end of no fault because they don't pay for insurance, but all of their rights were taken away so drivers could pay less for insurance, and so ICBC could make a lot more in profit under this monopoly insurance system that they have. So Ben's rights were gone, no pain and suffering for him, no diminished earning capacity. He, he says he's got a permanent disability in the arm that's not yeah. going to be reflected by any kind of a settlement. All of that was taken away from Ben, so the driver could pay less money for vehicle insurance. So, so okay. no fault is a pretty rough system, but... Fault still matters when you're talking about who's responsible for a crash on vehicle damage claims. Fault still does become important. But, but here's the key thing that a person like Ben needs to know. When ICBC internally says, we think you're at fault, whether it's 100% or 50%, they are not in charge of that. They internally could have their opinion. But if you don't like their opinion the civil resolution tribunal is going to tell everybody what's what and their position is binding on icbc so ben presumably still has the right to have his claim adjudicated okay. and that needs to happen first before icbc starts saying pay us money back speaking to lawyer eric mcgracken about no fault auto insurance in this particular case this guy was badly injured the cyclist when he was hit by this vehicle now he did he did tell the vancouver sun that um, he's satisfied with the medical treatments that he's received that has been, that ICBC has helped to coordinate. And he's had a, a ton of treatment here. So he's had surgery. He's had 26 physio sessions. He's had x-rays. He's had CAT scans. He's had tons of re, uh, rehab sessions. He's had splints applied to his, li his, his arm and, and his foot. So, you know, it sounds like he's happy with the, the medical care that he's receiving. But I guess your point is, that beyond that, he can't sue for any other damages. So it's not like under no fault, he could not sue for any pain or suffering. Yeah, pain, right? pain and suffering, residual disability, diminished earning capacity, all these consequences, economic and otherwise, of permanent and disabling injuries, the rights for that stuff is gone, right? The way, yeah. the, way, the, you know, the way they designed this system, they said, okay, we're going to take a whole lot of rights away from the victims of crashes, just to make the cost of insurance less. So it's less money into ICBC, but a lot less money out from ICBC to crash victims. And in, in terms of him being satisfied, I can't speak for Ben. He's not my client. But I was reading, I, I think in the province he gave an interview, and he was talking yeah. about his disability. He was off work for a meaningful period of time. And, and this is the system. ICBC doesn't have to pay you your wage loss immediately. They could say, hey, use your sick days from work. Use your short-term disability from work. Go to medical EI. Use all that stuff up before we're going to start paying you money. You? And, and I think he was displeased with that as well. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tough lessons here yeah. of, of you know, what crash victims are actually stuck with right now. Hey, Eric, just real quickly, that we'll fit in a break here and take a few phone calls, but on the other side of it, right, ICBC says that now that they went to this no-fault system, the personal injury lawyers like yourself are, are not collecting a, a lot of money on these cases anymore, and ICBC says that's saving us a fortune. They are, they are raking in profits right now, like $3.4 billion in profits over the last two years, and they've been mailing out rebate checks to ICBC customers. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are probably happy to see their auto insurance rates go down and they're getting checks in the mail. So what's not to like about that? I think everybody is happy to pay less for something that they're forced to buy, which is auto insurance. That's a good thing. But I think if you need the insurance and you find out what's on the other end of that bargain, you're very displeased with the process. So put it this way, hopefully you're never in a crash if yeah. you're satisfied with the current system. That's truly what it comes down to. All right, welcome back. Talking no-fault auto insurance with Eric McGracken. we got a ton of phone calls here. Barbara in Cloverdale. Hi, Barbara, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I had 
four four points really quickly. Why, make make just make I, just one real quick, will you, please? Oh, well, the, I mean, why would anybody in the Lower Mainland want to ride a bike, especially in a city of Vancouver that wants to promote bike riders? Maybe they should also pay into ICBC and maybe ICBC instead of rebating us all for inflated gas prices. Give back to these, this poor man that is in this unfortunate situation. Yeah, okay, Barbie, thank you for that. Well, I mean, uh, Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think she hits the nail on the head again. It's, you know, it's the savings of many uh, at the cost of the rights of the few, right? And so, so the government banked that no fault would be popular, saying, hey, everybody has to buy the insurance, or at least many people do. You guys save a few bucks, and let's hope you're not a crash victim and you won't be pissed off with it. But but her point, I think, on this rebate is really valid. Here you have ICBC raking in billions, and now the government is using that as their own piggy bank for pet political projects, saying, hey, we're going to give a yeah. gas rebate. Look, we're looking good. And that's what, that's what the current government really criticized the former government for all the time with ICBC. The other interesting thing, Mike, is they're giving this money back. It's a gas rebate to people that buy car insurance, but everybody, people that don't own cars, cyclists, etc., they're paying inflation, right? Groceries, cost of goods, everything's gone up through the roof because of increased gas prices. So it's not just people buying insurance that that are yeah. feeling the pinch it's everybody but the government's being selective about who they're giving the money back no to. i think it's a good point even if you drive an electric vehicle you're getting a gas rebate so that doesn't yeah. make any sense don in vancouver hey don go ahead well i'm glad you got to me because no fault insurance is excellent i believe that before we had like a lottery system you got into a light bender bender you were going to the hospital tying up our medical system and tying up the court and guys like your guests used to bathe them off the money of taxpayers. So that's, I'm so glad it's here, and I'm glad guys like him aren't getting paid, overpaid for what they do. Okay, Eric, what do you say to that? Yeah, so so these calls always come in when you have a personal injury lawyer on board. Some people dislike lawyers, and it's tough to, it's tough to respond to Don. I mean, his... His point is premised on the fact that people, members of the public, are committing fraud, right? He's basically alleging that somebody's the victim of a crash and they're hamming up injuries. Fraudulent claims should never be paid under a tort system or under a no-fault system. If somebody's injured, those people should be accountable for trying to milk the system. And, you know, again, as far as, you know, if Don says, hey, that's not right, I agree with Don, that's not right. But to to say that no fault is better because uh, profoundly injured people have had their rights taken away, I simply can't uh, agree with that point. Okay. Kevin on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. The thing that is really annoying about a system like this is under the tort system, that is where you sue for a wrong that's been done to you, people in British Columbia and most jurisdictions around the world have always been entitled to an award for pain suffering, and loss of enjoyment of life. And those are huge things. All your options, how you have fun, how you recreate, whether you can have sex, all sorts of things uh, come into uh, play when people are hurt. And in a no-fault system, they only get awarded uh, something for essentially their income. So that's totally unfair. It's also a socialist, you know, (laughs) dream that, all these people pay in a ton, and the government will and already has uh, used that money for things that it should normally be paying under its own budget. Okay, Kevin, thanks for the call. Eric, I, I imagine you'd agree with him. Yeah, well, what I would add to that is yeah. the no-fault system ends up being a one-size-fits-all system. There's no... There's no flexibility for the individual consequences of crashes. And so in perhaps the most unfair aspect of it, the texting driver, the distracted driver, the person that blows the stop sign and injures themselves have the same benefits flowing their way as the victims of their wrongdoing and carelessness, right? They basically said, we don't care who's the bad driver. We're just going to take away the rights of the victims and give everybody some some bare minimum amount here. And again, if you're the victim of the crash, that probably doesn't sit very well with you. Ross and Burnaby, you got Ross, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, hey, um, from my understanding, there are some private insurers that do cover cyclists. 
Um, and, uh, you know, if anybody's serious about cycling, they should look into that kind of stuff. Um, and ICBC should, and look, the other caller said ICBC should offer cyclists some kind of coverage uh, so they are not uninsured motorists. Okay, thank you for bringing up that point. Is that correct? Can you get insurance as a cyclist? we got 30 seconds, Eric. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I don't believe through ICBC, but there are a lot of private you know, homeowners policies and, and other private policies folks could buy that might help out. But I think, I think that caller, Ross, does have a good point. ICBC should seriously look at expanding coverage for cyclists instead of just taking their rights away. Eric, thank you for coming on today. Hey, my pleasure as always, Mike. Anytime. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the sky-high cost of meat now. Now, you forget about gasoline. Have you paid a trip to the meat aisle in your grocery store lately? Wow. Last Sunday, I bought a rib roast for my family. I got two teenage boys at home, and they tear into a, a beef roast like cup like lions around an antelope. It's a feeding frenzy. But man, oh man, you talk about the price of beef right now. I mean, you practically have to take a mortgage out on a roast. Why is the price of meat so high? Well, check this out. A new class action lawsuit in the works alleging price fixing by big beef. We're talking the big meat packing companies. Let's discuss now with my guest, Radar Mogerman. He is a lawyer on this case. He specializes in class action and product liability. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Radar, thank you for coming on today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, this lawsuit now, a class action, and the targets of the class action are, we're talking big beef here, right? Like these are big companies here. Yeah, you've, you've got that right. You've got sort of four um, vertically integrated North American companies like Cargill and JBS and Tyson and National Beef Packing. So these are the big um, beef uh, packers who essentially control the vast majority of the North American market. Yeah, so they basically, they almost got like a monopoly. That, that That's a way of describing it. In, in my business, we call it market power. So if you have enough market control uh, and you all get together and agree on doing something, then you can move the whole market. And that that's sort of a monopoly is a, a way of thinking about it, but yeah. you, you've got it essentially right. Right. And these are the beef packing companies. It sounds like, is this like the middleman in, in the equation here? These, these are not ranchers. These are not guys who are raising cattle. They're the beef packers. They're the guys in the middle. Is that right? That's that's exactly right. Yeah. You've got you've got the the cattle producers who sort of grow the cows, and then those cows wind up being fed, so that you've got these sort of cows that can go to market. And these are the people who who buy that uh, supply up and then resell it into the chain that you and I will eat out of, you know, restaurants or grocery stores, things like that. So these right. are the the middle people in the chain. Again, you got you're, you're on target. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this class action lawsuit. What what are the allegations here? So the allegations are that this group of defendants got together and uh, manipulated supply and price. So they basically controlled how much cattle was coming out of the out of the cattle producer side of it. That then controls how much beef is going into the into the chain, and that then allows them to increase prices. So it's an artificial control on supply and price. That's the allegation. Right. And how much have prices gone up? Like I was told that story, I went to the supermarket on the weekend to buy a roast. And man, you talk about sticker shock, like prices are way up for beef. Are they not? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, beef prices have gone way up. I don't have the statistic in my head. Um, and there you need to disentangle uh, a bunch of possible causes, right? There's lots of reasons that beef prices could go up yeah. and price fixing would be uh, would be an illegal reason for them to go up, and there probably could be legal reasons. And we have economists try and sort that all out. So yeah. if we prove price fixing, then we're going to have to say, well, how much impact? But the short answer to your question is beef prices are way up, and they yeah. are uh, up even more than the rapid infl inflation that we're seeing with the supply chain issues we hear about. Right. Speaking of lawyer, Radar Mogerman, he's a lawyer on this uh, proposed class action lawsuit against Big Beef for alleged price fixing. Now, of course, these companies deny that there's any price fixing or collusion going on. There was a, an issue. 
a statement issued by one of the companies saying like, no, this is not happening. This is a free competitive market. We don't break any laws. We engage in ethical business practices. So, you know, I guess not surprising they would deny it. How, how do you go about proving something like this? Like, first of all, you got to get the, the lawsuit certified in order for it to go forward, right? Yeah, yeah, you've got it. So, so if you take a step back, uh, there is an ongoing investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division. That's the division that investigates price fixing. And there are parallel lawsuits in the U.S. And the JBS defendants uh, have settled one of those lawsuits uh, already for $52.5 million. So uh, just as a sort of gut check, is it real? Those are facts that are out there. But in terms of proving the case, you're right. These are cases that take a long time. They're very complicated. Uh, We have to first establish that the case is appropriate as a class case. And that's what you're talking about with the certification thing. And then we got to dig into the documents. We got to ask witnesses questions and we got to subpoena people and and prove the case. So it's a long road, but we're, you know, we only file cases that we believe in and, and we believe in this case. Right. And it's interesting to take a look at what's happened south of the border in the United States, as you referenced, where there have been similar allegations. And and one of the big companies involved actually did recently settle out of court for a lot of money. Let's listen to a short news report on that precise case here. Uh, This report here from ABC News, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side here. Have a listen. Meatpacking giant JBS has agreed to a $52.5 million settlement in a beef price-fixing lawsuit. The other packers involved, Tyson, Cargill, and National Beef, have yet to reach an agreement. The nation's four largest beef packers have argued that supply and demand issues and not anti-competitive behavior drives the price of beef and influences how much those ranchers are being paid for their cattle. But the industry's practices have been questioned by the White House and Congress, and the Justice Department has been investigating possible price fixing inside the industry at least since 2020. Okay, that report there from ABC News. Speaking to Radar Mogerman about a proposed class action lawsuit on beef price fixing here in Canada. So... One of the company we heard there in that report, as you as you mentioned, one of these big companies, JBS, actually paid out fifty two and a half million dollars U.S. to settle a similar suit in the United States. There, now they also though say that they're not admitting any wrongdoing, right? So they're not admitting anything. But if they didn't do anything wrong, why are they paying out so much money? Yeah, so so there there I think we got to be as a lawyer I, I do I have to be careful right that settlement does not admit wrongdoing just as you said right. yeah um, you can you can imagine that as a business person you're doing a, a calculus and you're saying okay what are the risks involved here and what's the cost of this litigation so what's my what's my move but yeah. to me the the important point is that you've got real investigations by real government authorities you've got real lawsuits that have real settlements uh, and if this case uh, is what we believe it is then hopefully we can recover some compensation for the people who paid too much that's the the big buyers like uh, grocery stores and it's the small buyers like the mom and pops uh, who have to feed the antelopes to the lions (laughs) yeah and uh, i i take your point there that yeah, you do have to be cautious on this stuff. I mean, for sure, because this company, yeah, they paid out 52 million bucks in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, they're saying we're not doing this because we're admitting we did anything wrong. We just think this is the best solution for our company here going forward to, I guess, make this thing go away, just settle it. Um, so now we come back to the class action in Canada as you go forward with this certification process. If this does go forward and you achieve some kind of settlement, where does the money go? Who gets the money? Yeah, so so um, what we, we we've done a bunch of these cases and we've done significant cases. So if you think about there was price fixing in the computer world, we did LCD screens and DRAM, and we did the case against Microsoft. So we've done a lot of. I think uh, my firm has been involved in probably hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of distributions to people in cases like this. And what you do is you create a distribution protocol, you, you create a plan, you try and make it simple so that people can, the, the mom and pops can come forward and say, yes, I bought beef and, uh, and, and I'm going to recover maybe a couple hundred dollars. And then the big players can say, well, I bought hundreds of millions of dollars of beef. And so I'm going to recover 
uh, a more significant chunk. So yeah. a big part of these cases, if you succeed, is actually putting together a fair and fast and efficient distribution. And if we ever get to that happy place, I will uh, be harassing you and your listeners to make sure they come forward and claim their share. Right. So if I paid beef, if I, if I bought beef, I could sign on and get a share of the settlement, correct? Exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. We're following this case with very keen interest here. I'm really interested to see how it goes forward. And as you move forward with this, on the, you mentioned there's a process where the class action lawsuit has to be certified first. How difficult is that? Like, what's your batting average in terms of getting cases certified? Is it, is it, is it an easy thing or is it a difficult thing to do? It, it's a, it's, it is uh, being slow here because there are two things built into your question. Okay. One is what's the batting average? Yeah. Uh, this firm's batting average is very high on certifying cases like this. The second is, is it easy? The answer is it's not easy at all. It takes yeah. all kinds of economic evidence. It takes a lot of time. But in the end, on a case like this, we have had a very high batting average. So right. if, if we talk to each other in a couple of years, I hope to say to you, we have this case certified. We're now moving into the trial stage, um, but there's no guarantee. Uh, certification has been described as a as supposed to be a meaningful screen, and we've had to walk through that screen many times. Right, so a couple of years. So this is obviously a long process here. This could take years to resolve. Absolutely. So yeah. The big cases that I've worked on uh, can take a, like a decade or even more. Um, uh, we've gotten more efficient over time. So I'm, I hope we can make those numbers smaller because we want to be able to, you know, deliver the access to justice as fast as we can. Uh, but they're big cases and there's a lot at stake right. and the justice system is imperfect. Okay. So in the meantime, if I'm going to the supermarket and I'm buying hamburger or roasts or what are steaks, should I save my receipts so I can show that I, I bought yeah. beef? You you absolutely should from my perspective. Okay. Um, we usually try and make these, uh, for the mom and pops, uh, we try and make the claims process not require receipts. So I, I, I don't want to burden anyone, but if yeah. you are a big purchaser, uh, if you're a restaurant chain, if you're a caterer, then keeping these receipts can be quite useful down the road and you can have a real recovery. Okay, we're going to follow it very closely. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. No, thanks. Thanks for your interest. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the price of meat. And you heard my conversation there with class action lawyer Radar Mogerman and that uh, proposed class action lawsuit against the big beef packers in Canada uh, targeting those four huge companies, uh, the, the meat packing companies in Canada. Now, what about the smaller independent operations? Let's talk about that now. My guest is Susanna Fredette. And we reached her at the Back Valley Ranch near Cache Creek. We got her on a satellite phone. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Mike. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know for the listeners, just so you know, there's a little delay on the line because you, you live off the grid out there near Cache Creek, right? Yeah, we're completely off the grid. We just have uh, solar and a backup generator, so no cell phone service or anything, just um, satellite internet and uh, satellite phone. Oh, I love it. It sounds it sounds awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about your ranch? Um, well, we're affiliated with the um Steveston farm. My um other half, Jerry Steves, is um his dad is uh Harold Steves with the uh yeah, sure. Steveson farm and then uh in nineteen seventy six uh Harold uh, bought um Back Valley Ranch uh, out here by Cash Creek and in Savannah and um Jerry um Jerry bought it uh uh around 2009, I believe, uh, 2007, 2009, and um, he started doing direct marketing, and we went from about three or 400 customers when I came along in 2010 to we currently have about uh, 1,600 customers. Wow, that's awesome. That How many, uh, you got cows and pigs, right? Yes, we have uh, cows, and, uh, cows and pigs that we do. Uh, we do pigs twice a year. How many head of cattle you got out there? Um, we have for mama cows. We have usually between forty-one and forty-three. So then we have the cow, we have the calves, and the yearlings as well. So at any given time, we have usually around one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty head of cows. Okay, why is the price of meat so high right now? Would you say? 
I would say the the cost of production, I can give a perfect example. When I first met Jerry in 2010, we were charging um, $5.25 a pound for a side of beef, like that's cut and wrapped. And now the side has gone to $11 a pound um, cut wow. and wrapped, but our income has, our, our actual income, take-home income, hasn't gone up at all. Wow, that's interesting um, because this lawsuit is charging these big, massive international corporations, these meatpacking companies, but are you, so it, it, the the high prices that people are paying that's not getting that's not trickling down to you guys at the ranch there well like all like we we set our prices eh cuz we don't go to um the livestock co-op like we don't buy our animals we raise them ourselves so we can if the price of production goes up we can raise our prices yeah. whereas regular ranchers who have to take their animals to the uh to the auctions and stuff like they're stuck with what the auction will will give you and i can tell you those ranchers are not making anything um at all but like like when we would buy our hay like five years ago hay was 150 dollars a ton delivered like now we we lucked out last year at 265 a ton delivered um five years ago it was 500 dollars to um to process a yearling at the butcher and and now that same yearling costs 800 dollars at the butcher Susanna, sadly, we just have one minute here. You direct market your meat. Like, can people just come to your farm and buy meat out there? Um, no, we actually deliver. They pre-order. Um, they pre-order online, um, and uh, then we do deliveries to the um, interior. And uh, we go to the Stevenson farm um, on the coast, and then people pick up their orders there. Okay, I'd love to have you back on so we'd have some more time to talk because I'm I'm super interested in your business and talking more about it. So let's have you back on again soon. But thank you for coming on today. Sure, thanks very much. Vladimir Putin has sorely miscalculated. He has ignored the democratic and law-abiding spirit of the Russian people. He has underestimated the brave Ukrainians defending their country from aggression, with whom you have no cause for war, no cause for hatred, no cause for violence. And he has severely misjudged the resolve of the world to stand against him. We should all say together, directly to President Putin, stop this war. Stop this war. Stop it before there is more death, more pain, and more hardship. All right, welcome back to the show. That, of course, the voice of Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, uh, speaking recently to the UN. Let's talk to him in real time now. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bob Ray, ambassador, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure, Mike. Nice to be with you. Okay, it's nice to talk to you again. And you've made very several passionate speeches to the United Nations. Could you comment a little bit on, on what your approach has been uh, to this conflict, the Rus- Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Canada's approach to it, your approach to it at the UN? Well, you know, I was talking to a, an African ambassador this morning uh, about the situation and we were sharing thoughts. He's a man of great experience. He's been a diplomat for over 40 years. And I said, what do you, what do you, you know, quite apart from the d- diplomacy and the governments, what do you think of this? And he looked at me and he, and he said, Bob, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And he went into describing how uh, he, in all of his experience, this is one of the most uh, offensive uh, breaches of the peace and, attacks on another country that he's ever seen. I must say I was taken aback because there are many people who kind of use the opportunity to to not speak clearly, but he, he clearly was not in that mood at all. And I think it's I think this is a widespread feeling at the UN. I think there's also a lot of concern about how we how can we get out of this? How can we prevent more loss of life and how can we get things back on a on a better track? But I think it's been a for me it was an opportunity to express uh, a lot of thoughts in Canada about the about the UN, about the Charter, about what's at stake here, about why we have to tell the truth, about the importance of using the platform that we have here at the General Assembly to share our views. So I've I've had the opportunity to do that, and I must say I'm I'm very proud to have had that opportunity, and we'll we'll keep pressing on that front, but we'll also keep pressing on other fronts to try to get to a, uh, to try to get to peace with justice. But it's going to be difficult. 
Speaking to Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, what do you think the impact of the Western sanctions has been on Russia? Canada has imposed sanctions on Russia, and uh, uh, many of our allies, of course, have, have done the same. What do you think the impact of, of that has been on the ground in Russia? I think it's been huge. I think it's been yeah. extremely serious. I mean, you're cutting Russia off from the banking system, the international banking system. You're you're creating a lot of issues for uh, for supply chains, for people's ability to export. Um, I, I think it's it's having a profound impact on uh, on, on on the ordinary Russian on the street. I think it's it, and frankly that it's a blunt instrument. You know, you might say, well, that's really that's tough. You say, yeah, but. You invade a country, there's going to be a price to pay. And I think that's it's one of the most effective uh, exercises in using sanctions that we've seen since, uh, since 1945. Let me play a clip here for you, Ambassador, of Jen Stoltenberg, the General Secretary of NATO, commenting on the situation. In the past few days, we've seen comments from Russia that maybe they were prepared to pull back uh, re- to redeploy some some forces, pull back from the capital, yet the shelling continues. Uh, here is the NATO General Secretary on this, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side. Jen Stoltenberg. We have heard the recent statements that Russia will scale down military operations around Kiev and in northern uh, Ukraine. But Russia has repeatedly lied about its intentions. So we can only judge Russia on its actions, not on its words. Okay, that's uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the head of NATO there. Ambassador Ray, your thoughts on that? I agree completely. In fact, I've said the same thing uh, in so many words for many, many days now. Reporters will often call me up and say, what do you think about Russia doing this or that? I said, you don't judge Russia by what they say they're going to do. You judge them by what they do. Uh, because the moment they announce something, they will do the exact opposite. Um, I, I don't think we've seen more systematic disinformation, what most of us would call lying, uh, in, in recent years. It, to me, it's just unbelievable how this kind of propaganda has taken hold of the Russians, of their diplomacy, of their public diplomacy. Um, and it gives us an opportunity, frankly, to expose it for what it is. It's, it is just a series of of lies that are strung together as if it's a policy, and uh, it's it's deeply troubling. Yeah, and we see some graphic examples of that in the last few days. I mean, even today, there are reports out of Ukraine that a humanitarian convoy of buses that were trying to get people out of Mariupol, which has just been tragically shelled by the Russians, that, you know, these buses are stopped at a Russian checkpoint and not allowed to proceed. So, I mean, when the Russians talk about pulling back or that maybe they will allow some humanitarian corridors for people to get away, what would be their, their interest in lying about something like that? Doesn't it make them just even look worse on the world stage? I think it does. I don't, I'm not sure they care about how they look. And I think they've just gotten into some terrible, terrible habits. On the, on the, the situation of Mariupol, it's awful. Oh. Um, mm. we've, I've been talking with the UN people here and, and diplomats here from other countries. And we, we, they've been, we've been really trying to find a way for the last 10 days to get people out of Mariupol. Yes. And we've had some of, some people have been able to leave, but the Russians are not about to let people leave um, because they want to find out who they are. They want to find out what their background is. They want to find out what their history is. And then if they, if, 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 if they think they've been any kind of, activist with respect to ukrainian politics or anything else they they say get off the bus you come with us and then they disappear so i mean this is this is sheer brutality we need to understand we're dealing we're dealing with a dictatorship we're dealing with a country that is that has not been able to abandon the culture of uh, of soviet communism in terms of how they've acted um, and they use brute force and brute power to get their way and, and that's that's what they know, and that's what they do. Uh, any romance about uh, you know what the Russians are really all about, or any thought that you know we somehow misunderstood them, or or any thought that somehow we're responsible for this is just nonsense. This is deeply embedded uh, in the Russian state and in the, their way of acting in the world, and that's why it's so outrageous. 
Speaking to Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the UN, we heard in that the clip of the speech to the United Nations that we played of you at the start here, you talked about the series of mistakes and miscalculations that Vladimir Putin has made in this conflict. And he appears to have mistakenly thought that he could achieve a quick military victory, seems to have miscalculated the level of Ukrainian resistance, uh, the impact of Western sanctions. It just seems like it's been one mistake after another that Putin has has made here. Where do you think that puts him in in his mind? Like, is is this a guy that just makes him is he cornered and that makes him even more desperate and more and more destructive? Or do you think he's looking for potentially a way out of it? The answer is, I think he, I think he is cornered, but I also think he wants. I think if he could find a way out, I think he would. But the problem yeah. is, is that he still wants a he still wants a price. I mean, he said today, according to a readout from a conversation he had with the Italian prime minister, he said this is not the right time for a ceasefire, which means he doesn't feel he has sufficient advantage in the field of battle to be talking about a ceasefire. So he's going to wait till there's more carnage. Uh, and more destruction, and then maybe he'll talk about a ceasefire. I think internally, I'm sure there's a lot of things going on in Russia, and, and, and certainly in the, in the Russian army, in the high command, and elsewhere. They've lost thousands and thousands of soldiers. Um, they, they, they've, they've suffered huge, uh, significant defeats. But they're a massive, um, a massive war machine. That's what they've built up. It's, it's, uh, it's old. It's old. It's, it's not, not up to date, but it's big. And they've still got a lot of stuff they can throw at people. And so I, I, I really think we have to come to grips with the fact that the Ukrainians are going to continue to need all of our help militarily in order to allow them to effectively resist what the Russians are doing. And we can't let up on that front. There, you know, we, we are the, the idea that somehow we come closer to peace one day or another. I, I think it's very hard for us to say that with any confidence at all. The fact is the Ukrainians have agreed to keep on talking, which, which I say more power to them for, for making that decision. But we can't, we can't let our guard down at all with the Russians. It just isn't, isn't possible. Ambassador, thank you for taking the time for us and the listeners today. I'm, greatly, I'm, I'm very grateful to you for that. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. It's a thoughtful program. Appreciate it a lot.